the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, this is a fun episode. We recorded it live in Atlanta in front of a few of you. We had a live podcast recording back in April, and I'm sitting down with Ritz Carlton and Capella Hotel Group founder, Horst Schultz. And it's so great to have Horst back on the podcast. We go into places and directions we haven't before. And today's episode is brought to you by Belay. Good leaders do it all. Great leaders delegate. So if you want a book on delegation, we've got one for you. Just text Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y to 55123 and get back to doing what you do best with Belay. And by Glue, are you ready to receive a lot more prayer requests and have more people reaching out to your church? Go to get.glue.us slash texting to sign up for your free texting account. While Horst and I talk about, well, the origin of the phrase, my pleasure. I don't know how I caught wind of this. I think we were talking earlier in the day. And, you know, when you go to Chick-fil-A now, it's like, my pleasure, my pleasure. And I always love origin stories. So he will set the record straight because I thought they took that from Ritz Carlton, which is partly true. But then Horst explains what actually happened between him and Chick-fil-A founder, Truett Cathy. So I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, one thing that really amazes me as I get older every year, as you get older every year, is how do you stay curious, fit, and contributing like well into your old age? He's 84 now. And so we talk about that. And then we talk about excellence and the power of not being average. And uh, well, one of my favorite things, his care policy that he implemented when he was the COO of Ritz-Carlton. So anyway, I think you'll enjoy it. Horst Schultz is a founding member of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, establishing a new standard of excellence in the hospitality industry. Under his leadership, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel became the first service-based company to be awarded the prestigious Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award twice. Later in his career, Mr. Schultz founded the Capella Hotel Group. Now he energizes organizations to reconnect with their service commitment. He also has written his first book, Excellence Wins, which I highly recommend. And it's good to have Horst back on the podcast. So you ever said this to yourself, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Well, we've all fallen victim to that mindset, thinking we're the only one capable or willing to get the important things done, or it has to be done right if, if you do it yourself. Can't be further from the truth, though. There are many servant-hearted, qualified people who can help with your list because no one can do it all. You have a church and a kingdom to serve. So to get things done that only you can do, delegation is a must. So Belay's modern staffing solutions have been helping busy leaders like you delegate the details for over a decade. With Belay, you get intentionally paired with a U.S.-based virtual assistant, accounting specialist, or social media manager, and they will level up your church through the power of delegation. To help you get started, Belay is offering a free resource called the Top 25 Tasks a Pastor Can Delegate to an Assistant that gives you actionable steps to successfully release some of those tasks and start to thrive. To claim it, just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. That's Carrie to 55123. And soon you'll be back to doing what only you can do, growing your church. And so get it today, carry to 55123. And by now you've heard Glue's ads for their free church texting platform. So this time I want to give you something different. 
I'm going to tell you one incredibly easy way to use texting to connect with and build relationships with more people. It's not just about like spamming people with, hey, don't miss this weekend, okay? Here's what you do. You create a free account and sign up for free texting with Glue. Just go to get.glue.us slash texting. If you're already using a different text provider, that's okay. This will work with them too. So that's get.glue.us slash texting. Glue then gives you a QR code that contains your unique number. Take the QR code and put it everywhere. And I mean everywhere, like put it on signage around your church, your new visitor card on your screen. You could even put it on telephone poles, car windshields at hospitals, bus stops, bulletin boards, anywhere you can think people might have a need for prayer. You could even get fridge magnets made, send them home with church members. It's really up to you how creative you want to be. But when I say everywhere, glue means everywhere. And that's the beauty of a QR code. And then what happens is just encourage your people to scan the code and submit their prayer requests via text. So that can be people driving by in a billboard, people in your building, people in their kitchens looking at the fridge magnet. The reason it works so well is because it gets your number in front of as many people as possible, doesn't require fancy marketing, lowers the friction for engagement, and calling a church or a friend for prayer personally can be scary. But a text, a QR code, that's easy. And since texting from Glue is 100% free, there's no reason not to try. So if you want to really catalyze your prayer team and get more people reaching out to your church, go to get.glue.us slash texting. Sign up for your free account. It's absolutely free. Get.glue.us slash texting. And now my conversation live in front of a studio audience with Horst Schultz. It's good to be with you again, Horst. Great to be with you. Yeah, so um, and an honor to be with all of you who are podcast listeners and a uh, number of Art of Leadership Academy members. We, now that the world is open again, want to do more and more live podcast recording and meetups in different cities we find ourselves in. This is the first time we've really done this just for the Academy and for podcast listeners, so we're really, really honored that you would be here. So, Horst, we've had a few conversations um, here's a, here's an interesting place to start. So you've got a Chick Fil A cup, yeah, <laughs> uh, today, yeah. and you and I were talking. I was earlier. the only one that was there <laughs> <laughs> about your relationship with Truett Cathy. Yeah. So Chick Fil A has been famous for how they say thank you. They don't say thank you. They they don't say you're welcome. They say my pleasure. What's the origin of that? Well, that's kind, that's kind of a funny thing. I generally people who know me and know the background of Ritz Carlton. All think that, and no, and many of people know that I consulted with Chick Fil A as far back as thirty some years ago, and we had a meeting, and we, I talked with them about the importance in any business of relationship. It, it, it's, it's not a, it's the product has to be right. Now, let's say we we're sitting in the office and said, let's go out for lunch. Where do we go? Where the food was good? No, that's not where we go. We go where we felt good. That includes the food, obviously. So we were talking about that in that meeting with all the vice presidents. And Truett Cathy, the founder, was sitting in the back. And I said, and, and, and the relationship is done by how you look at the people, how you talk, what words, what words, words are very important. For example, in Ritz-Carlton, I told them, we don't say hi. Because if I say hi, I say we are equal. 
But if I say good morning, ma'am, good mo- or good morning, sir, welcome, I'm saying I respect you. But at the same time, I give a message that I am professional. You can trust me. I'm giving those messages. We went through that and I said, you have to look at people within 10 feet, look them in the eye if you can, and say welcome, good morning. And so no hi if you can. Not that important in your market, but in Ritz Carlton, that is very important. And don't, we don't say folks or guys, or we say sir, ma'am, ladies, gentlemen, and so on. That's Ritz Carlton. And instead of saying, okay, when you order something, we don't do that. We say my pleasure. But frankly, for you, and what I told them then, frankly, for you and Chick-fil-A, that's too fancy. Your market, don't say my pleasure, because you, you come across silly. And, and everybody agreed. Everybody agreed. So they said, what, what word should we use? I'm happy to, there was a discussion. All of a sudden, the owner, truth cut in the back, raised his hand and said, I like my pleasure. <laughs> so I said, Mr. Cathy, so do I, obviously, because we're using it in Ritz Carlton. That's a must. But it's too fancy for you. And he said, I like it. That was the end of it. So, <laughs> so that's so how it became. Now I get credit always. You did it. I, I convinced them not to do it. So, so you know. <laughs> Now you know the backstory. So, Horst, we've had a number of conversations on this podcast. You've been on a few times. And we talked about the origin of Ritz-Carlton. We uh, talked about some of the endeavors you're up to now. And I want to explore in this interview some of the backstory. So I don't know whether you share your age publicly or not. You shared it Sure, I have no problem, yeah. Okay, so you are... I'm 84. 84. And you've got to work to keep up with Horst Schultze, I'll tell you. I mean, we've walked together before, even going downstairs to breakfast this morning, you know. You, you keep a great pace, you're in excellent shape, and you're intellectually engaged. We were talking about your schedule, and you sit on a number of boards. I would love to break that down. What are you doing at this stage of life, at 84, to stay fit, sharp, and intellectually curious? It's, it's really very simple. It's very simple. You, you marry a wife who watches very carefully what you eat and what you do just so you stay in shape. That's all. Okay. So, marry well. Eat, eat your vegetables. Eat, <laughs> okay, honey. You shouldn't eat. You have enough sugar for the day. Take the sugar away. Also, go for a walk. So, I do everything she says and I'm fine. <laughs> I married well. She's here today, Tony. I'm like, I, 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 I qualify. This looks good for me. No, I don't always literally. I mean, no, I, I, I have pretty well, pretty good routine of, of you do, ha- you have to exercise. You know, I, I listen uh, 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 on, on TV. Some somebody was interviewed for the, about good eating and so on, and he said, "Let's not talk about uh, uh, obesity." He said, oh, "We talk about uh, it is genetic and gen-. and I said, forget it. it. Has to do with food and exercise. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you eat and what do you exercise?" And I, I believe in very much, and, and, and I, I do exercise. And I, I used to be a, a runner. I ran marathons and so on and so on. A little bit, that, that's too much. I, there is not a morning and I didn't run at least between six and 10 miles, but not anymore. And now I walk, okay? Now I walk, but I walk steep hills and I walk and so. I make sure that I have at least a day, an hour a day exercise, somehow, wow. somehow. And then of course, 
uh, mentally, keep on reading, keep on working, keep on active. If you sit at home and on, you, some people retire, they sit at home on the couch. What do you think that will do to your mind? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Your, 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 your mind, like a muscle, has to be active and then you're fine. I, I have no issues. And now, of course, I take I do supplements and stuff that talk to doctors about it. What should I do? How should I keep fit? I talked, had my, had a, I have my, my, one of my doctors is in Los Angeles. Those are those, those guys that you don't accept insurance, you know, those Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I had, I, he said, I, I wasn't on Skype with him yesterday, and, and five minutes later I had a bill, and I nearly fainted. And, and, <clears throat> but, but at the same time, uh, make sure that, that you have the right supplements and the right stuff, and so. You, you, you have to do that. And I, I made a deal with him. He has to assure that I stay in the, the shape that I am right now for another 10 years. That's and I, I will, I will. I mean, it is a decision. It's partly a decision. If you make a decision, you know, everything you do, forgive me, that's I get carried away easily. Go ahead. Everything you do, what is your high intent? People just do things. I mean, I don't understand. We are human beings. Animal do. We do, we should do things with a high intent. If your high intent is, if, uh, is, is a five, you never make an eight, period. So my high intent is I will stay at least in this shape till I'm in 94. I have an obligation on that to my wife, who happens to be 14 years younger. I promise that, that I will stay in shape. When we got married, we made a deal at the time. I said, should we really do that? Because women live longer, men die earlier, and blah, blah, blah. And we made a deal uh, that I will, she, and she said, yeah, we do it, even if I only have five years. That's what she did at the time. But I made a deal, yes, I will stay in shape. So I have a deal. So it is the wife in many ways. <laughs> it is. It is. This is a question I didn't send you in advance, but it's got me curious. So if you look at how America, and we're dealing with a lot of pastors in this audience, but also in my broader audience, and we also have a lot of entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs, and you know, you're an entrepreneur. You hit a financial place probably decades ago where you no longer had to go to work because of money. But if you look at the average American, it's sort of work, 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 hopefully save enough that maybe you don't have to work part-time into your 70s, and then you kind of hit a finish line. But one of the things that really challenges me with that is I think there can be a demise in intellectual curiosity. You stop contributing. I'd love to know, I'm gonna assume you hit that financial line early in life where you could have just bought a couple of yachts and sailed around the world. <laughs> no, 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 that's exactly yeah. Not yeah. exactly, okay. But I, I could, yeah, I, you, you I didn't have to work. I, I didn't have to work, no. So what keeps you working? Well, I, I, I don't think, I, I, I mean, I don't, that sounds, because you're pastors, as if I say something because of you, I'm not. I don't think it's God's plan that you sit at home and watch TV. I think we should keep on learning and contributing. I absolutely believe that. There is no word in the Bible about retirement. I don't understand the word at all. What, what do you mean, retirement? I, I talked to... <clears throat> I talked to a neighbor who retired much earlier than I did, much younger, uh, when I retired from Ritz-Carlton. Mind you, I retired from Ritz-Carlton, and my, my wife convinced me to retire. 
uh, after 20 years, I started with Scotland. Now, mind you, I was traveling 250 days a year. Yeah, that's a lot. It, 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 I, I worked. I opened everywhere in Scotland. I didn't go there as the CEO, drink a glass of champagne and say hello and put a tuxedo on. I went there to open the hotel and train the employees. Everywhere in Scotland, the first 50. So I was gone 250 days a year. So my wife convinced me to retire and I retired on a Friday and talked to my neighbor at the time. My, my wife picked me up in the office, the kids, we cried a little bit and I left wonderful people behind, but it was the right thing to do and blah. And then I talked to a neighbor and he had retired. I said, why did you retire? He said, so I can do what I like to do. I said, what is this? What is, I was looking, I, I said, there must be something exciting. He said, well, I like golf. You mean retire to play golf every day? You must be kidding me. And I sit there and I said, wow. Well, what do I like? Well, I like to play hotel. <laughs> so I said to my wife, I started, I, I, on Monday I said to my wife, I'm gonna start again. She declared me insane immediately. <laughs> and said, you mean you retired for a weekend? I mean, whoever retired. And so, so but, and, and she, I said, you're right, this is wrong. And, and, but a few days later, she came to me and said, hey, that's who you are, I support you. And I started a new hotel company, which was Capella, mm -hmm. which by the way, now is rated best hotel company in the world. I sold the company three years ago. But all the way, what, 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 why did I want to do that? The creation, creating being connected to people. I, I think we have an obligation when you go into leadership roles, and, and, and in a way you all are leaders. Uh, but when, when you come into the leadership role, what is your high intent there? Of course, running the company, of course, creating results for the investors, of course, doing nothing. But the real gift is that you have an unbelievable opportunity to positively impact the life of many people. And, and to just give that up and sit somewhere without contributing to the peop, two people around you, it, it's, it's a terrible human thing to do and it's a waste. Yeah, I've, I've become obsessed with that question, you know, turning 58 this year, I'm like, yeah, what does the rest of life that's look like? That's the like? beginning, that's the beginning. Mind you, when I started Capella, I was 65 years old. I started a new company. Wow. And it's, again, today it's the number one hotel company in the world, and the highest rate in, in, in quality. What did you change between Ritz-Carlton and Capella? Well, okay, the world changed. Mm -hmm. I listened to what, I, I, it's not about you, it's about your customers always. You have to listen to the customers. Unfortunately, business usually is about them and they try to force the customer to live according to what they offer. No, it's about my customer. And I, and I listened in, in, in the late 90s, it was very clear that the companies we work with, we work with Shady Power and other analysts, analysts who analyze the market and came to me and said, you know, the market, the luxury market is changing. And a couple of things happened. Clearly there will be a affordable luxury and ultra luxury. So, and so I looked, so let's make a study what is ultra luxury. We made that study, and it's very much the millennium start are pushing that very much. They're saying- So younger people are pushing affordable or- um, Ultra luxury. Ultra luxury, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah. And here's how. 
the millennials are saying, there's some of you here, we just went to work and did things. They're saying, what's in it for me? They're also saying when they buy something, do it my way. And as a Ritz-Carlton, I couldn't do it for everyone individually because our hotels were too large for that. So to do it your way, each individually, totally individualized, I couldn't have more than 100 rooms. So in those 100 rooms, if I have 100 rooms with an average stay of three, I have 30 average arrival and departure day. I can do everything. The Ritz-Carlton bucket, we had an average arrival and departure of 300 a day. So I can't, I, can't do, I can't do everything for you, but for those 30, I can call them in advance and said, you're coming to Singapore. What can I do for you before you come here? Do you have an allergy? Do you have a diet? Check-in time, we don't have check-in time. You come in whenever you want to. Hmm. Check-out time, as long as you're out before night. You're fine. We don't, everything is about you, the individual. That's other, of course, we have to charge for that. Mm -hmm. we, we have to charge much more than Ritz-Carlton does, three times as much. Um, so we, we are limited where we can be. I'm speaking as if I still own the company. I don't own the company. Uh, we are limited where we can be. So it's all about the customer. That's the concentration. It's totally... And, and since the customer more and more said, do it my way. And luxury to the... And luxury has a different meaning in their mind. In their, in their mind, luxury is, again, if you do it my way and the surrounding is of high quality. Luxury when we started Ritz Carlton was chandeliers, marble, oriental rugs. That was perceived as luxury and decent service and good food. Today, it's much more a reflection of responding to you individual that means luxury to them. Hmm. You were involved, I believe, uh, we were talking a couple of years ago, in some concept hotels in Nashville. Did that go oh, yeah. anywhere? No, never went. Never, never went anywhere. Never went, yeah, no. What was, okay, so maybe well, that's financing, a financing, they couldn't find, the owners couldn't find the financing. Okay. Great, great people, great thought, great, great concept. It would have blown everybody away. Can you share some of those ideas? Well, yeah, uh, again, it, it was, we sat down and said, how, how do we speak to this new customer, to the millennials. Mm -hmm. So we said, okay, you, you millennials here, you're all a little bit weird, but it's very important to you to do stuff for, and say, oh, we, we're doing things for this person, this person. I just donate things and what I do, I don't care, as long as it's for right cause. Uh, so we, we think about making a few surveys we said, okay, in each room, we will not have numbers for the room. For recognition, we would have that anyway. But in each room, each room has a little picture of an orphan. Mm. And when you use that room, you just donated $5 for that specific orphan. Bang, that was a millennial thing. Can you imagine? Uh, once they stay in a hotel like that, they said they would feel embarrassed to go anywhere else because we are not only serving you well, and then we said we find probably some handcraft people in Africa or whatever and use some of that handcraft 
in the hotels and so on and so on. So concentrated on serving, not just a guest, but serving society in a big way. That was the thought. What process do you use? Because you sit on a number of boards as well for discerning a good idea from a bad idea. So you had an idea in the 80s to start Ritz-Carlton, and then you started over again 20 years later with Capella. And now you were thinking about working, or you were working with some national investors with a socially conscious, socially responsible hotel. How do you discern? Because we are all brokers of ideas. Well, the first thing you have to come to the point to understand it's not about you. It's about your market. It's not about you. It's about the market. If I run a good organization or or a good company, whatever it is, I have to know what does the market or or the potential market expects things about my product. Once I know what they expect from my product, I have to create processes to deliver that. I have to align, the the word alignment is used a lot in business now and, and people don't know what it means, but they're using it. I have to align my employee now, my employees behind that expectation relative to my product. And at the same time though, as a leader, and that's the word leadership comes right now in here, I have to make sure my employees want to do, not have to do, but want to do what the market wants. Bang, now I'm aligned. Now I'm aligned. And deliver to the market the way the, the, what the market wants and how they want it to be delivered and how they want to be treated. You see, and, and, and we have to understand, you define yourself as an organization or as a business, not by the product. That's totally misunderstood. Mm. Why that is so difficult to figure out when every survey shows you that, it's beyond me. The relationship that you have defines you. Let me give you a silly example. You, you, you mentioned this before, that's why I picked it up. I don't know why I mentioned You go into a hardware store and you buy a hammer. Buy a hammer. And it's a good hammer. So you go home, it's a good product. And, and, and your neighbor comes over to have a cup of coffee with you. Would you tell them, hey, you should go to this hardware store, they sell great hammers? <laughs> no. But what, what, what if they say, when you came in, they, they looked at you and said, I'm, I'm glad you come to our store. I'm, if I can help you, I would be delighted to help you. And sure enough, you have a question about the grip of that one, and they helps you and said, here's why. And so, wow, great professional answer. When you paid, he says, thank you for coming to our store. We were honored to serve you. Have a wonderful day. And your neighbor comes up for coffee, for coffee, you may say, you won't believe it, I, was, I bought a hammer. And they treated me as if I bought a, a house or a car from, they treated me as if I was in a rich garden. You may, relationship, you, you, your whole makeup is excellence. You know, I wrote a book about excellence. And, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Excellence is not an accident. It's the result of high intent. I want to be respected. I want this and hard work. Excellence in a thing like the hammer is simply if it works well for what it has been created. That's excellence. Excellence in a human being, though, is if you do your very best functionally and you do your very best 
relationally, you see, that's what's relation, what they, that they do in the store. That is relation. And you, of course, if you do your very best morally and ethically, and if you do your very best spiritually, if you do your very best in those areas and try to continuously improve it, you are become or become a person of excellence. And I have to bring that into that store, into that store. But you see, you define yourself, not by the product, but how you treat human beings. That's how you define yourself. I want to pick up on something you shared in a previous conversation that I think about all the time because I stay in a lot of hotels and I'm someone like when I led a church for over 20 years, I was very particular about environment, sometimes to a fault. But you said something about when you ran, yeah, I know you are, which was one of the things I love about you. When you ran a Ritz-Carlton, if there was a stain in a chair and you couldn't get the stain out or there was a small tear, I think you said your policy was replace it. And every time I see a defect in a carpet, a chair that's maybe a little worn out or saggy, and these are at nice hotels too, I think of that. It comes right back to what I said earlier. What does my market want from me? Particularly that the Ritz-Carlton market, more so even dramatically more, in the Capella market, the Vaya market, one of the key elements what they expect is immaculate, totally clean. So I said to our people, I want to absolutely know unquestionably that my rooms are the cleanest in the world. Cleanest in the world. I, I, I don't want to hope, I want to know they're the cleanest. Because I know my market, it's a very important to my market. So we, and, and in fact, I give you an idea, we, we developed a test case in our hotel, which we used a lot because it was the most difficult customers we had in, in Palm Beach. Another pen. We had 46 complaints. We looked over the, over the last two years. When, when, it, when, when I said I can't stand anymore, I still get complaints about the room. I don't want zero complaints in the room. Zero. And he said, can't be done. Lights burn out. I said, I don't want my lights to burn, burn out. Figure it out. And so we created a team to look at it and they came back with the answer. After we, we applied a new process, we had one complaint after 10,000 occupied rooms. Wow. So what we did, we go every three months, we go into the room and care for it, clean and repair everything. Four people go in, paint that. If the carpet has a spot and we can't clean it, out, new carpet in. Chair, it doesn't matter. The room has to be new every time you walk in. And they were, they were at my time. I guarantee you, they were the cleanest room in the Capella, I guarantee the cleanest room in the world. Guaranteed. And we, sure. we didn't just clean the toilet, we disinfected the toilets, etc., etc. So, yeah, there was a key element because it was driven by the market. There you are. Well, and what's interesting, so care, I didn't get the acronym before. Clean and repair everything. Yeah. As, as a Dutch guy, I'll tell you, my parents were Dutch. I love that. That's fantastic. Uh, and I love stuff clean. But the argument you made is it's actually not more expensive. Oh, it's not saved money, but they didn't understand It saves that. money. So explain how well, that policy yeah, saves money. Yeah. Well, so we added four people into the equation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, two would have been any day, anyway there to respond to calls. My curtain doesn't open. Bang. Light bulb burned out, the TV changed, and battery is gone, and so on. So we respond to calls. But when you get that call, you already have a dissatisfaction happening. Okay? 
So what we, what we said, we don't, we don't do that. So, but because we kept the room so much in order, every little scratch in the, in the furniture was fixed when they left. It was new. A hotel room with, with a normal occupancy of low 70% over five years has to be done new. It's, it's worn, it's finished, you need, you need new. Not the way we did it. Ours lasted eight years. So we saved millions hmm. by having the cleanest rooms. However, when we sold the company, they said, what are those four people doing here? What a waste of time. 50, someone tell four, that 200 employees, that's hundreds of thousands, they were fired. Oh. They didn't get the thought and they wasted millions by doing that. Well, and you said the other thing too, which is, you know, what happens is if you do it every five years, you basically have to shut floors or wings down. Oh, sure, sure. And then it's, it's tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of carpet exactly. and furniture exactly. all at once, which is why churches get into this problem, businesses get into this problem. You see this in software systems where it's still running on DOS. You know, but it's like, well, that's going to be like $10 million to replace all the software. So you're using this. But if it's continual yeah. upgrades. It's, it's, it's amazing how people work that. I mean, but that is another thing we did, you know, I mentioned cons consulting with Chick-fil-A. We made sure that, we, that the stores on our routine maintenance, so they always look good. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to talk, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about technology. Um, so one of the things that's changed rapidly and it's changing even faster in the last year with AI is we are now getting machines to replace human beings. So think about, and, and I imagine this is going to be a pet peeve of yours, but the on-hold system, your call is very important to us, and then you're on hold for 20 minutes, we have higher than normal call volumes, et cetera, et cetera. If you're running a company today, how do you do customer service? What role does technology play and what role does it not play? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I don't know how businesses think. Again, the, the reason they come to this point is simply they're not concentrating on the customer. They concentrate on themselves. That's, that's why, look, everything a business does, I mean, we, we are, and, and you do it as organizations too. Uh, even if you hire somebody, you hire them to fulfill a function rather than hire, bring and asking them to come and be part of you with everything. So what is happening with technology? I, was, was, I made a speech a couple of months ago for the classic hotels of America, all the top hotels of America were in the room. There was a speaker in front of me, was a lady who, who runs a great resort, resort and she runs a great resort, but she spoke for 45 minutes and I'm not exaggerating, at least 30 times she mentioned Forget everything you knew about the hotel business. Forget all, it's all technology, this technology, this technology. She talked about all the technologies. I, I mean, if I would have had a hook, I would have pulled her off the stage. I mean, I mean so, <laughs> I, and, and, and it really annoyed me because, and when I came in, I was the next speaker and said, nothing has changed, okay? Because 5,000 years ago, people wanted to be respected. Last week they wanted to be respected, and today and tomorrow, and in 5,000 years from now. And that is our business, to show them you are important, we respect you, we are here for you. And the technology should only, if my technology doesn't support that, I shouldn't have it. For example, pretty soon, 
you will check in into a hotel on this thing, you're ready. You, check, you make a reservation here, and then you come to there, you check in, you call the elevator, you go to your room, and then you check out, and it's done. You don't see anybody anymore. And then they say to make, oh, to make, to help you. That's a lot of garbage. They're doing that so they don't need front desk people anymore to save money. All right, that's the point. And so what am I doing that? I'm in hospitality. So what am I going to do about that? You in hospitality too, by the way. So what are you going to do about that? I would do the same thing, but I would have somebody have some young people, young people, I'm saying that as a word, so don't anybody get prejudiced or whatever here. I would have some people on the, on the door waiting, and when you come in, still say, welcome to you, and take you to the elevator, and have communication with you, relationship, and say, I hope you will have a chance while you're here to try our restaurant, because guests love it, have communication, take you to the elevator, and by the way, I am horsed, and call me when you have any problem. So I'm still giving you human hospitality and still tell you, you are important to us. I respect you. And if you ever come back here, and I'm going to convince you from the front door to the elevator, I will convince you that when you come ever back to this town that you use our hotel. <laughs> you cannot do that with technology, but I can do that as a human being. So I will still keep, but let me, one word about hospitality to you guys too. You, you. St. Benedict, maybe I mentioned that to you in the conversation. St. Benedict, the founder of the Benedict Order and the Benedict Monasteries in Europe, in the year 500, wrote a letter to all his abbeys, the heads of all his monasteries, and he said, that's the first teaching you can find in hospitality. And he said in this letter, if a guest arrives, treat him, men arrived in monasteries, women didn't arrive there, so don't get mad with me here. Treat him as if it was Jesus himself. Wow. And he said, bow down. And if the guest is alone, is by himself and has dinner, even if you're in a fast, break the fast to join them but before dinner, wash their feet. That's hospitality. Now, I have to question myself, how close can I come to that? And treat them, each one of us, if it was Jesus himself. That's hospitality. And I cannot replace that with technology. Now, but I can have technology to help me to do it, to know who you are when you check in and to have all kinds of things and, and so, so that you, when you leave, feel even more important. You, when you leave, do not ever think of staying in another hotel than mine. You, when you leave, I have convinced you to talk people positive about me. When I, when I started with Capella, we didn't spend one dollar for advertising, not one dollar. All convinced the guests. Now, we went to travel agency, knocked on their door and said, hey, here we are, please try us. But I want to make sure that if that travel agent sends somebody to me and we made sure that that person goes on the telephone and said, thank you for putting me here. And consequently, the travel agent selling us and consequently we run the highest rates where we are and the highest occupancy. Wow. So I want to think about lifetime value of a customer versus acquiring a customer in business. So a lot of people, and this has church application too, because 
It's like, I was always into evangelism. Let's reach new people. That's very close to my heart. If I was doing it over again, I would pay a little more attention to not retaining people, but helping people after they first come. So talk about lifetime value of a customer, cost of acquiring a customer, and where to put your emphasis. Well, <clears throat> well my, my emphasis is to keep the customers that I have. Yeah. Because I know, and, and I, I, I very well, look, I, I knew, and it's called the average customer's age was 44 years old the average age of the customer. So I know they, they could travel between 25 and 30 more years, business and vacation. So I knew how much, how, how average, how often the traveler average users and, and how what they paid average, I knew everything. So I will have to multiply it by 25 and I came to the conclusion that a customer of ours is worth up to $200,000 each. Lifetime. Without they referred of others without them bringing a meeting or a wedding or anything, just them as individuals, travelers for business and vacation were worth $200,000. Why wouldn't I move heaven and earth? Just an expression, okay? <laughs> uh, heaven and earth to keep them. Why wouldn't I say, all right, they're worth I better keep them. But worse today, and, and this is true for you in, in churches, if they're not happy, this, you, you cannot afford that anymore. Now, even during my time, I couldn't, in a Ritz-Carlton, afford it because they came from travel agencies. And if they're not happy, the travel agency takes it from the shelf. It doesn't sell it anymore. But today, the dissatisfied customer or patient or guest or parishioner or whatever you call them, when they're dissatisfied, they become terrorists against you. They become going to inter on the internet, they go on social networking and become a terrorist. I cannot afford that. So consequently, every one of my employees has to understand we are here to convince every guest to want to come back. You're not checking people in. You are with your action convincing this guest to, to want to come back and want to recommend us. That has to be a mindset, a culture of the organization. Yeah, that is, that is such a good learning for me. Like, I, I always think that your service department is your sales department. Because, and one of the things you've done really well in all of your organizations is you seem to be able, this isn't, this obviously is something that exudes from who you are, but it goes right down to the kitchen staff and the restaurant, to the maintenance crew. Everybody seems to own the Ritz-Carlton values. And we've talked about reciting, is it the 26 values? Every single day, there's a team meeting, etc. But how do you instill the virtue that customer service is everybody's job? Well, uh, we have various processes. On the end, you have to understand, once you, once you decided on something, you then have to step back, what is my process actually to accomplish that? Mm -hmm. and you, you, done, you, you, you can't hope, hope is not a strategy. You have to say, okay, I want to accomplish X, how do I accomplish that? Like with employees, I wanted employees to work in our organization, feel part of the organization. It's a key element, by the way. Key element in the organization. Do the people, do the people that work and, and, and work with you and, or, or for you, whatever, do they feel part of what is happening? 
The, the largest survey ever made was three million burkas, blue color burkas, in US and Europe. Several universities involved. And the question was, what is important to you in your job? Now the total expectation was that number one was money. By the way, it was number six. Hmm. Was nearly irrelevant uh, in comparison to the first two answers. The first answer was, I want to have a sense of belonging. Wow, it blows, blew everybody away. Yet, yet if you go back, even Aristotle said, you cannot be fulfilled in life if you have purpose and belonging. But go into any company, do the employees really have purpose and belonging? They don't. So we, and so we said, what is our process to accomplish in every single human being purpose and belonging? So it starts with the selection. We offer them no job. We, in fact, we said, don't come to work for us. Join our dream. Here's our dream. We want to be seen as the finest service organization in the world. Join us to do that. By the way, now I date millennials. Now I have to tell you right away how you will benefit from that. Right. Here's what's in it for you because you will now be defined as the finest in the world. If we are defined, you will be defined by what we accomplish. Not only that, it will give you more opportunity because we will grow. Not only that, we will have better guests, you will make more money, not only that. And so now I'm telling you, here is our vision. We want to be the finest in the world. Join me to accomplish that vision. And here's, how, here's what's in it for you. Not just a job, but here's what's in it for you. Suddenly you start a sense belonging. That's the, that's the selection in the orientation, the first day of work. That's a key element, absolutely key, because what you want to accomplish in an employee is not only the function, but the behavior in that function. How do I look? Do I look the guest in the eye and say, good morning, sir? That's behavioral. And, and behavior cannot be taught. After somebody's 16, behavior is set. Now, th those are not my ideas. I worked with behavioral analysts in the University of Colorado and the University of Frankfurt and those things. So, behavior can only be taught if there is a significant emotional event in a person's life. In the first day of work is a significant emotional event. So rather than what companies do, what do companies do the first day of work? The new employees come in and say, here are the rules and regulations of the company, here are the insurance papers, here we do it, and, and, and then, and I'm going to say one little colorful word here. If you don't want to hurt, put your finger in the ear in, in a moment, okay? And then, no kidding, and then the, the manager makes this pathetic team speech. We are a team here, we are a team, we work together. What's a team? A team is a group of people who have a common objective. But you come and check the given. We work together. For what? To be the best in the world. We say that again. But that's not what he does. He just makes a team speech. And then he says, hypothetically, there's a new way that it could be any job in any world, okay? New way that build a new way that build. Work with Fred. He's here nine months and he knows the ropes. Somehow you got into the rope business here. <laughs> I don't know how. So we turn over Bill to Fred, and here comes the word. On the way to the kitchen, Fred tells 
Bill, this company sucks. That's his orientation. <laughs> and then we expect something from them. Come on, man. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, um, you know, that's why orientation in every new hotel and every takeover hotel, I did. Mm. It doesn't matter if that was Shanghai or Osaka or Berlin or, or, or Philadelphia. I did the orientation and I said, here's who we are. Be sure you join us. And, and here's what we want to accomplish, to be the best in the world. We tell them again, to be known as the best in the world. Why do we want that? Because it's good for the investor. It's good for the customer. It's good for society. And it's good for you. How is it good for you? Because you define yourself as being the best. Even today, if, if, if a Ritz-Carlton employee looks for a job, looks for a job and the hundred other people apply for it, the Ritz-Carlton employee gets it. Why? They're defined as being excellent. And we explain them that right there. So that's this, the orientation is the second one. They didn't see anything. And then we teach them the 20 some things that are non-negotiable. They must happen. And then we repeat those one a day. Every 25 days, days, you heard the same message again. Number 12, if a guest asks for direction, don't point. Take him there. On the way there, here's the conversation you're going to have. You know, relationship. Back to relationship. And so, so everything was processed and then we measured if it happens. I got every morning, I knew in my office here, all hotels around the world, what's the, how many guests say, we want to recommend you and want to, want to come back. It had to be at least 92% top box, meaning a scan of 1 to 10, 10. And I made it very clear. At the same time, I'm, 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 I'm owning those standards. I'm, that's it. I'm the standard owner. I'm the vision owner. And I'm the only one who can say if a guest is not good. Mm -hmm. so, but I looked at every measure. I know how many, the employee satisfaction, I know every day, the customer satisfaction. If it went under 92%, I was on the telephone right away and called the regional vice president and channel manager together. Hey guys, you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've worked on it. Thank you very much. I called in four weeks. It has to improve. If it didn't improve for two months in a row, I moved into the hotel and improved it myself. Wow. Like literally took up residence in the hotel. In the hotel. No, you, you know, I only, I, I have no right to compromise because our objective of being good for all concerned was important for the owner, for the guest, for the society, and for the employees. I cannot, I cannot forfeit that. I cannot compromise. I have no moral right to compromise that. If it stayed under 92%, I moved in and said to the general manager, you have to sit in the corner in the office and see what I do to correct it. And so next time you can do it yourself. Huh. All right, we're going to go to audience questions in about five minutes, 10 minutes or so, but I'd love to get your consulting brain on a problem that almost every church is facing. So people are back at church right now, and a number of churches are growing, and we're finally seeing momentum after COVID. But the one sector that really hasn't recovered is volunteers. And it seems like everybody thought through their life and said, yeah, I'll come back to church, but I'm not in at the level of commitment 
I was before. And it seems to be the larger the church, the bigger the problem. So I'd love for you to think through what are some of the principles that our audience could use, the leaders listening could use to help motivate, mobilize, and uh, really instill that sense of, of mission, belonging, whatever you want to call it, in volunteers. And think about it in the context of, I don't know whether we get back the ones who, who have tapped out, but even inspiring a new group, because most of us would say, you look out at your church, it's a different church than three years ago. So you got to motivate new people as well to step up and serve. Yeah. Any thoughts yeah. on what would be helpful? For you? Well, I, I, I have no, never thought about it. And I, of course, you're closer to the feelings, but if I would relate this to a hotel or to any other basic sure. guys, I'm for the last many years consulting with all, all kinds of companies. I don't accept hotel cons consulting. I could get them every day. So I work with, with, with hospitals, with health groups, with a financial company, with a REITs, with, with, with bank. I mean, all kind of people. And it's re really all the, all the same. It's just all the same. The employees want to be part of something and want to have purpose. It goes back right to the Aristotle study that said, you want to have belonging and purpose. So how am I going to belong and purpose? I can imagine if I would be young man, I wouldn't just want to work in, 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 to, to usher or to, in a parking lot or so on. But if I would know, if I would know that, 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 that in a very big sense is part of the ministry, meaning I am actually helping people to find, to be connected to Jesus by doing my job. If I know I have a higher purpose, than pointing to a parking place. I would have to find a, a higher purpose. And you cannot expect them to find it. You have to find it for them and show to them. And there has to be a high in higher intent here. They have to, how, how, how do, do you assure that those volunteers feel part of the church and not just part of fulfilling a function? That again, that is the big problem in all businesses. They hire people to fulfill a function rather than to be part of the thinking. Does, if I'm going to drive into your parking lot and there is somebody pointing to park over there, if I would go out of the car and discuss with that person, your church, would that parker know what the, what the dream of the church is for what it wants to be 10 years from now? Would it, know, would it have inner knowledge? Would he feel totally part, just like any, any one of the few leading pastors, what is going on, what the dream is, and what, what you want to accomplish in 10 years there or one five years, or is he just fulfilling a function? Okay. You see, guys, you cannot hire people for function. The chair in which you're sitting is fulfilling a function. You're dealing with human beings who have a, whom you have to help now to have a higher thinking relative to their function. To me, it's, it's, a, it's a very sad thing, and, it's, and it's, of course, it's a thing of our society. I mean, I make, I make speeches to my wife about it, and she said, I have heard it a thousand times, so what are you going to do about it? And I'm nothing. <laughs> uh, 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 we, we have no purpose. 
we, 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 our purpose is just to complain and, 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 and say things what is wrong, and, and, but higher purpose and higher thinking is not there. We're looking, but it's not, no surprise. Uh, look at Adam and Eve, the first, think about it, the first, the first thing that happens, hey, God, I, uh, me? Because of an apple, me? You, it's the woman that you gave me. <laughs> Nobody accepts responsibility, nothing. And, and leadership has to very much at least accept the responsibility for the culture, for the belief system in the organization. Mm. And, and say, okay, I have to be sure that we are all aligned in what we think. I don't mean the Christian belief now, what we believe, who we, what, what we want to accomplish with, with the people, what we believe that this church will be in the five vision. years from now, the vision. How, how can you go with, you know, everybody talks about leadership. It's, it's pathetically talk about it and a leader. And, and you talk to those leaders and say, where do you want your business to be from 10 years from now? No idea. But otherwise they lead without knowing where they're going. I mean, I mean this is amazing. What, what, what is your vision? Sit down and agonize. Who do we want to be as an organization, as a church, as a as a youth program, as, 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 as anything. What is my high intent? Where do I want to be? And then once you decide on something, you have to question yourself. Clearly, would God approve? Now, I, I, when, when I started with Carlton or Capella, and we said, this is, I want to have the best hotel, known as the best, with, with, with Ritz Carlton, it was, I want to be known as the best brand in the world. And then I have to question myself. Wait a second, is this good for the investors? And not just say yes, but agonize about it. Is it good for the customer? Is it good for every employee? Is it good for society? Is it good, would God approve? And if the answer is clearly yes, not just you saying yes, we wrote down on a flip chart, here's why, that, 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 and here's why it is not good. Then you as the leader own that. You own it. Period. You cannot compromise it anymore. Because if you compromise, you go against every employee, every customer, go against the side. You cannot. You cannot. You have no moral right. And then you have to say, okay, now how, and then you say, how am I going to accomplish it? By having employees who are aligned and so on. How do, how am I going to accomplish that? What is my process? And so you build an organization of excellence, hmm. period. All right. Well, we get uh, Carly Voinsky is going to take some questions. Well, we get the first one lined up. I've got one more for you, which is uh, we don't all have Horst Schultze in our church, but I think, I mean, there's only one. But most of us have at least one or two or a handful of super high capacity leaders, volunteers who have been very accomplished in the business world, in their own companies or beyond. And one of the things I've really been struggling with is what do people like you, and we'll do it very specifically, how do you like to serve in the church? I have a feeling that we have so much untapped potential sitting in the chairs on a Sunday morning. What do you wish a pastor would tap you on the shoulder and say, Horst, hey, could you help us with this? Yeah, I mean... That's difficult to answer because people know what church I go to and, and, and uh, abstract it. You, you have a good well, pastor. No, no, and, 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 I have a great pastor. Andy Stanley, I think. No, no. no. Oh, different. Michael church. Youssef. 
Paul. I go to the Church of the Apostles. Church of the Apostles. Okay, yeah. great, great. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's difficult. I, I, I would... <clears throat> Hypothetically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I would... Like volunteers, I have, uh, for instance, with the uh, Passion Church. Yeah, Louis. I, 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 Louis, I spoke several times already to all their volunteers. So I can offer a lot. You love doing that. Yeah, because, and if you have an outsider telling them the value that they are, if, if Louis speaks to them, is Louis actually wanting something? Let's be honest, you know. If, you, if I talk to my employee, I want something. They know that if I bring an outsider in that has credibility, that outsider help, helps you to look at your job and so on. I appreciate so, it. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I, I spoke a few times there. I've talked to other churches with the same, in the same role and so on. I would think that in my own church, I would speak to the leadership group separately, sit down with them and say and analyze, is our, is our thinking right? Let's analyze it together. Where are we going to go? Why are we going to go? How are we going to do it? And let an outsider challenge you. I'm not telling you, but I could, like I work with other companies, I could help you to find the answers mm-hmm. and, and, and challenge you on the answer. And say, well, wait a wait a second. I, 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 but but particular churches, you guys are pretty bad. I spoke to a beautiful campus, beautiful Christian university, to the leadership recently. And I, I mean, somebody should flog them, by the way. Uh, and and I, after we want to look at a vision for the university. And after about three hours agony, there was no vision. There was, here's what we do. I said, I don't care what you do. What do you want? Who do you want to be? Not, here's what we can be. No, not what can you be. What would you love to be? Nothing came out. Finally, finally I said, well, how about saying we will be known as the finest Christian university in America? Oh, that would be too arrogant. Hmm. I mean, come on, Christians. <laughs> what the heck do you want, Dan? You want to be mediocre? You want to be average? Average is the bottom of good and top of bad. There's nothing. <laughs> I mean, what is this? I want to be known in this town as the absolute finest, where you belong, where you get a message that is of value. But of course, that's where you screw up, you, you churches, you know. You know what? I, I give you, let me give you that message, okay? Don't, don't be mad with me. I'm European, okay? Go, go into the churches. Go into the churches in Germany and France. They're empty. Hey, there's a guy from France. They're empty. Because you have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer. They offer nothing anymore. And you're starting to do that left and right. I mean, I mean, I mean oh, we have we got to the people. We have to go to the people. Yeah, but you have left God behind. What do you, what do you offer to the people? Nothing. It is, it, is, it is stunning to me. Why would people come to my, my, my businesses if I have nothing special to offer them? May as well stay at home. They're getting just as much as in many churches. Do what you want, and, and somehow that's great. I mean, it's amazing. Product is, the product is important, Yes. If you don't, send, don't send and sell any hammers, they don't come to you to buy hammers. But you have to be nice to them so they come back to buy a hammer. Yes, 
I understand that. But they have to have a product. What's the product? Is that product which I have of value to them is my manager, message of value to them? And I, I'm telling you, I read this thing. You may, 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 some of you haven't read it too. I read this thing which is called a Bible. It has plenty to offer. Unbelievable what it offers to me. I said, wow. And, uh, why would you rewrite it? And some of you rewrite that stuff. I don't mind. You know, don't rewrite my Bible. I can do that myself. I don't need you for that. Glad I asked the question. Is that, is that clear? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Okay. We got a question in the back, Carly. Thank you very much for this time. Uh, my question is around, um, I understand the value of customer or member retention, but how do you balance that out with when you run into wounded or toxic people? that are going to disrupt your pursuit of excellence and you can't meet it. Yeah. Uh, because that's a real-time issue for pastors. I, I, you I, I, say I, your name too. It's yeah, uh, Josh Erickson, Park Ridge, Presbyterian, Chicago area. Are you talking customer or employee? Uh, customer. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it, that's it's a fun question. That's another thing that I own. I, I own that part. I said, I own the decision if a customer is bad or not. I cannot, there, there are three things I didn't delegate, as I said. That is the standards, I cannot say the standard. I, my, my, my standard of cleanliness, yours may be different. My standard is being the best in the world and I'm, I cannot delegate that. Uh, so, and, and, and that's another area that I didn't dele delegate. And the vision, the vision is will be the best in the world, period. And I not, don't let you compromise that. And number three was, I'm the one who make a decision if a guest is, we, we had a word for that, if a guest is a jerk. We called it the jerk factor, okay? <laughs> because, and I guess very early when I said, I, I, I developed the slogan, the, the, the slogan, it happens, I wrote an SA when I was 16 years old, which I named, we are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. We are not servants. We are ladies and gentlemen, just like the guest, but our profession is to serve them professionally. Okay, so I made that the motto of the company. And soon people came to me and said, yeah, well, not every guest is a gentleman. I didn't mm -hmm. say that. I said, we serve ladies and gentlemen that we treat and respect as ladies and gentlemen. And I'm the only one who can make a decision if they're not, period. Because otherwise, anything that happens, you claim him, the guest was a jerk. <laughs> you know, can't do that. So I made it very clear, you can call me any time, day or night. If there's a guest, you can absolutely not live with. Any time, day or night. And it has to be very clear. So, and I made that very clear. You can never can you throw guests out of the hotel. I'm the only one who can do that. So I had a call actually in Bucket here. My office was next to the hotel that it was here in Bucket. It's not Ritz Carlton anymore. It was our first hotel here. My office was next to an office building. And the channel manager called me and said, Horst, I know you don't want me to, but there is this guest here, this SOB and all this stuff. I said, shh, tell me what it is. Well, every morning, he is a long stayer. The every stay in that hotel was two nights. That he is here over a week already. Every morning he comes and talks an hour to me in the office and complains about everything. And he's lying. It's not true what he's saying. Not only that, last night he pinched the, the lady that served 
up in the club level. He's staying in the club level. He's paying a high price, Patin. Whoa, okay. Here we go. I owe him. He is mine. Here's what you do. You double lock the door. We can double lock so your lock won't work anymore. We double lock. When he leaves the bedroom, double lock the door. Make a reservation in another hotel. Have the limousine waiting. And when he comes back, it's double walk. You, the gentleman, should talk to him and say, Mr. Miller, wasn't his name. Mr. Miller, we at Ritz-Carlton want everybody to be happy. We have failed you so far. Please forgive us. We haven't made you happy yet. We try one more thing now. We have another hotel for you. Maybe that works. And you're, but you're gone. We're going to evict you. You're gone. The stuff is out. The limousine is waiting. Reservation is made. And, 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 and of course, I know the, a guy like that finds me. Guaranteed. And sure enough, I, I was waiting for him. I knew who would call me. When he came, there's a guest that's upset. <laughs> okay, Mr. Miller is on the telephone. So, hello, and he laid in. Ah, you're all talent. said, Mr. Miller, you don't have to explain me because I'm the one who gave the direction to evict you. Oh, I will own you. I will sue you. I will, oh, I will everything in the world. He said, that's, that's fine. You sue me. I will be in the courtroom together with the lady you pinched. Go ahead. I'm not kidding you. This is a true story. And we never, I never heard from him. Eight months later, the channel manager from, from Naples, Florida called me and said, Horst, I have this guest from hell here. Every morning comes to my office and complains. Not only that, he pinches the ladies in the club level. I said, oh, oh Mr. Miller is with you. How do you know? I, said, <laughs> I know Mr. Miller. Here's what you do. And when, when, they, when he said, um, we want, we, Mr. Miller was double locked, and the channel manager came and said, we want to have everybody happy. He said, oh, not again. And he moved out, and we never heard from him again. Yeah, you know, you have, to, you have to know there is a red line, and you have to know where that is. And, and if, you, if you insult an employee, that's a red line. If you keep on complaining, I would have said, let him complain. So as long as keeps on paying, so what? Raise the rate a little bit. Chef, if, he, if he complains too much for a week, give him a message. By the way, starting next week, the room, your room is more expensive. Charge $50 more a night. <laughs> then if it checks out, fine. But if we, we set the price. Do something. But, do, but you still, there's a line here. But you cannot, there is, we say every guest is right. All the time. But of course, that's not true. That's not true. But I cannot delegate that. Otherwise, every time something happens, the guest says, well, the guest was wrong. I'm, we, we were right. No, no, no. That's not how it works. I'm the only one. I cannot delegate that. I'm, I'm a delegate. I mean, and it's well known in industry not, that, that every one of my employees, everyone, every busboy, everybody was empowered when a guest is unhappy, they could make a decision up to $2,000. I would not be questioned to make sure the guest is happy. Anybody can do that. I, I'm delegating. But the certain thing is I don't delegate. Period. That's good. So that's one of them. So good question. Thank Paul. you. Other questions? Hi, um, I'm Crystal Mazuka from Westwood Baptist Church near Seattle. 
And love what you said about just that pursuit of excellence. Um, but I know that in ministry, I would imagine in business too, what we would call a pursuit of excellence leads us into burnout to the detriment of ourselves and our relationships. And so we'd just love to know some words of wisdom you would have for all of us in how do we pursue excellence but not kill ourselves doing it? You don't, I think you asked the wrong question, to the wrong, the, good question to the wrong guy. I, <laughs> I, I, I really don't believe in burnout. I just, what the heck is it? I, look, I, work, I worked as a, as, a, as a 14 years old. I, was, I left home when I was 14, lived in a hotel in a dorm room, worked as a busboy at, at the time I meant washing dishes and everything working at least 14 hours a day. I was never burned out. I enjoyed it because I wanted to work in a hotel. And later on, when I started at Scarden, for two years I didn't take one day off, not Christmas, not holidays, not, not nothing, not, not one day, not one day, not one day for two years because I was building a new brand. And here's why I was able to do it, because I had a dream. I didn't do it for the function. I did it for my dream. I don't go to work to work, period, never. Not one day do I go to work to work. I go for a dream, purpose. Again, people will perish without purpose. You have heard that piece. Again, Aristotle said it. Everybody's ever since ever can, and can tell you a lot of philosophers that you cannot live well without purpose. I never had a burnout. I enjoyed going the next morning. I couldn't wait to get in and work for that purpose. But if you're not driven by a purpose and it is just function, obviously you burn out, obviously. But if that function and that work is for something higher, that's why you don't do things without high intent. What, what is it? And, and then when the visions are created by people, they always come up something that is a business thing that, is a, that can be accomplished. No, a vision is something that you dream you would have, this beautiful thing. And, and that's why you work for it now. And that's why work is not work. When I started to work, allow me, I'm sorry. No? The first day of work, my mother took me. I, I begged to work in the hotel business. I cried and cried. My parents were embarrassed to go to hotel business, this low-class thing. And, 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 but that's what I wanted. And finally, they decided to take me to the best hotel in the region, which unfortunately was over 100 kilometers away. And in 1954, that was very far. Three times car took about three hours to get there with trains changing and so on. But it was the best hotel in the region. And the first one that talked to me was the general manager and said, you are here to learn to be a servant to very important ladies and gentlemen of our guest. My parents told me too, we could never go to a hotel like that. And then the maitre d' talked to me, a man of true excellence, never met anybody else like it in my life. Never, not even close. He didn't do anything without high intent. And he said to me, two sentences, it changed my life. Now, I didn't get it then. I was 14 years old, went there, I have no idea what he said. 
but it never left me because he lifted every day and repeated every day. He said, the first thing tomorrow, show up here at 7 a.m. Now listen, if I meant one minute after seven, I would tell you so. Seven. What did he do? He established standards, rules and regulation, no, no ifs or buts, was very clear with one sentence. And then he said, and don't come to work. Come here to create excellence in what you're doing. Create excellence, washing dishes, cleaning floors. A high moment was when we were allowed to clean an ashtray on a table. At that time, ashtrays. He came to work not to serve anybody food. His high intent is to instill well-being in people. It's a higher intent. And if you have that high intent, you love to work another hour to get there. What a beautiful moment. And love the attention because that gets you an inch closer to this beautiful destination that you know is good for so many people. That's why you don't burn out. I got to tell you, I respect that story and love that that's your experience. Um, I wish it was mine. Uh, Crystal, I got a book for you and we'll get it in your hands, okay? <laughs> so we will. Uh, other questions? Hi, uh, my name is Dave. I'm from Trailhead Church in Central North Carolina. I had a question around alignment. Um, I really appreciate what you said there. But what do you do when you feel very strongly about the product that you need to be offering and the market doesn't always seem receptive to it. In other words, uh, how do you persuade the customer that they need something they may not have come in looking for? Yeah, well, it's very difficult. That's, of course, very, very complex and uh, under certain, certain circumstances can do it. I did that here in Atlanta. I had a hotel Many people ask me, what is Ritz Carlton at the time? And today, nobody remembers that Ritz Carlton was a hotel in Boston, which was a flop house, which we took over. When you, when you went to the washroom in the public area, you have to pay 50 cents, 50 cents in and so on. It was nothing. We closed it, but it had a registered name worldwide. So we, we rebuilt it and it was a great location. So we, the first hotel we opened was here. And what I want to do is set the new standards and an and image and so on. And I want to build the best hotel, Brandon. That's why I came here. Before that, I was running 65 hotels for, for Hyatt. I was in charge of all hotels, food and beverage operations in the United States. I didn't need a job. I came here for a dream to create the finest hotel company in the world. Bucket being our first hotel. And when I, that was open, and then I knew I have to do something which nobody at the time in Atlanta would understand. Lobby, lobby bar, chamber music on Thursdays, tea, high tea. Well, there were a few ladies, influential ladies who understood it and came in. And then I say I have to go to the next dimension and have a truly world-class restaurant here to establish the brand. So I heard about a chef in, in, in Washington who just came from Europe. I went to his restaurant, had dinner there, and oh my gosh, unbelievable. To me, the best hotel, best food in the world. 
So I called the chef in. Can I talk to the chef? He came in. Can he, I said, are you allowed to sit down? Sit down for a minute. I said, okay. I said, and I told him at the time, you don't know yet, but you're going to work for me soon. He said, oh, what do you take? You, you're going to come and work. I knew that his cooking in Atlanta would not be accepted. I knew that. I knew that totally. And we, we at the time in that dining room had a good local chef. We sold an, we sold an average of 76 dinners a night, average. Weekend more, week less, but good restaurant. But I needed truly high cuisine. I wanted to build a global brand. I brought this guy in and I warned everybody, this is gonna be disastrous. My guy said, don't get shocked. The business will collapse. People will say, what is this? And small portion, very high end zone. And he came in and sure enough, we ended up three months later, we sold an average of 18 dinners a night. But I knew I have to stick to it. And then slowly more, and then all of a sudden sold out. And then people moving into the hotel some weekend just to have dinner there and reservations and I had, but it took a long time, it took pain. Now I could do, if I wouldn't have had a successful hotel, I couldn't have done it. I had a successful hotel with rooms, I had the money with other words. I had the staying power to do it. How I would have done, otherwise I could not have done it. I wouldn't know how I would have do it. I mean, but you have to question yourself, again, there, there is a constant questioning. Who is it good for? Is it good for everybody? It, I, I don't ask myself that once. What is right here? Would, and would God approve? I, that's a question I ask myself. Being, being a believer, I ask that. Would God approve? And if the answer is yes, I have to go on. In this case, business-wise, I could not have done it because the loss of money would have been too heavy, but I could afford it because I was doing pretty well in the hotel, the rest of the hotel. Hmm. All right, we have one final question, Carly. Yeah. Hi, I'm Shannon Parker from Raleigh, North Carolina. So honored to be in the presence of you both. So thank you. So I wanted to touch on culture and customer. In your book, you talked about leadership versus managing. And you talked about having that dream and being so passionate about it, which I believe we, my brother and I, we have. And then we want to hire and bring people who can tap into that, duplicate part of our work ethic, our drive, and expand it. But sometimes there's this gap between a, a, a high capacity or high performance leader and then those you bring on. You've established hotels worldwide. How were you able to establish leadership that came up to par to you as close as it could so you could trust their leadership and continue the culture and the impact for the customer? Yeah. Well, uh, part of the answer I've given, but there's more to it. Uh, part of the answer is I didn't, we didn't hire anybody unless we said, here's who we are. Do you want to join us? Don't come to work here. Here it is. We want to be the best in the world. Here's what, how, what it takes. Will you join us? So from the very beginning, we put our thinking into their mind. Basically, a culture is what does the organization overall feel and believes and thinks? That's the culture. So, but the leaders of it, I, I, I met, now, if I hired a general manager, mind you, I had hotels in five continents. I had to put, if you walked into Ritz-Carlton in Shanghai, you had to feel it's a Ritz-Carlton. You had to know it. And 
And the reportation that came back on me too, and on the rest of the company, was done by the doorman in Shanghai who had no control over and so on. So for, and it had to come from the channel manager, okay? So I made sure that the channel manager, I interviewed myself. But I made it very clear, look here, here it is. You have to understand, this and the 20 points, the 20 points that we teach plus a couple of other things with it, they're non-negotiable. And I said, read it. If you cannot live by that with your heart, don't join me because if you don't do it, look at me and tell them, look at me. You want to see a real enemy? That's me, buddy. <laughs> I'll hurt your career. If you, because if you're accepting it and you don't mean it, you're a liar and I don't need a liar here. Okay? And you're going against everybody in this company who are dear to me. So you have to, you have to accept this all. And, and so they're non-negotiable. And then we measure if it happens. When the outside company measuring if it actually happens in the hotels. Now, we had other tricks to make you feel like a rich Carlton. We had many little points that you didn't see. For, for instance, the, in the elevators, the same smell in every elevator in Ritz-Carlton. If you knew the smell or not, if you knew the smell, there was a... So we did little things. And when you... I, I checked into a, to a, a, a Vault of Astoria in, in Orlando a couple of years ago and arrived at the door, man, opened the door of the car and said, wow, that's good. And, and how, how they said hello. And I walked a couple of cars and then checked in and from this... I said, wait a minute, who is the general manager here? Oh, Michael King. Well, sure, he worked for me for 15 years. I could tell. <laughs> because I could tell that there was a general manager that worked for me. Because we taught certain things very, very careful. And, and we asked, hey, do you agree? We asked, we did something new. Does everybody agree? If don't speak up, but if you accept it, you must. It's non-negotiable, no matter where you are. Don't tell me, well, I, it's different. I, I heard that in the beginning. It's different in Berlin. Yeah, I know it's different, but those things are non-negotiable. The rest do what's different. But those things that are its carbon, the standards you live by, that's who we are. So we, we made it very clear, the expectation. We made every time clear, why do we do that? You see, Adam Smith, anybody who went to business school, Adam Smith, what did Adam Smith say? In his second book, where he started human being, he said, people cannot relate to orders and direction. What do we do? We give orders and direction to our people. He said, people can only relate to objective, that's our vision, and motive. We do it so we will be the best in the world. And our motive is so that everybody will benefit, opportunity and so on. We constantly refer to objective and motive when we do something. So that was our, our communication all day long. And I made it very clear, hey, and this is what will make you, you define yourself with this company. And, and I tell you how, how much that is true. 31 companies, hotel companies around the world today, the president or CEO uh, work, used to work for me. 31 companies. It's mind-boggling. Because, why? Because I was good. No, because the name defined them as being the best. And then we kept on reminding you, that's what we're doing. We're defining ourselves. And, and everybody, hey, listen, every parker out there defines you. Hmm. Everybody defines you. No, it defines the church. 
Who are you kidding? Can I tell him one more story? One fast? more story. Yeah. Listen to this for a moment. I, I had to speak to a bank. I probably told you that story before. 30 years ago about, about customer satisfaction. Be, be with me here. This is so important. This is a true story. Uh, Continental Illuminar Bank, which doesn't exist anymore. They want me to talk about customer satisfaction. Now, very fast, remember the two things that I'm going to tell you now. What is service? Service starts the moment you make contact. It doesn't start two seconds later. It starts, welcome, good morning, sir, good morning, ma'am. It continues by doing what the guest wants to help them. It's about them. And it ends by saying farewell, thank you. What's the customer's expectation? No matter what you buy, no matter what you buy in life, I know what your expectation is subconsciously. By the way, that's true in all cultures. All cultures. Your expectation is that the product is defect-free. If you buy a bottle of water, you don't want anything to swim in it. You want a product that is defect-free. Number two, you want it timely when you want it. Number three, you want the people to be nice to you. Remember that now, what is, what is service and culture and, and expectation? I hope you remember that. Back to the bank. So I go to the bank the day before. I've never been there because I know I have to speak tomorrow about customer satisfaction. I walk in. It's a beautiful bank. Marble, marble pillars, stained glass window, everything. And a long counter to tell us in front of us a maze. I go into the maze. 20 people in front of me. But it didn't, didn't take long. Pretty soon I was number one. I mean, literally. I said, look, look left. With all the tellers, I look left. And somebody over there screams, next. First step of service is a welcome. Next. She screamed. And I go to her as a woman teller. Men are worse. I look at her face. She's finishing something for, for a second. I can see, I don't know her, so she doesn't know me. When she looked up, it was totally clear that she hated me. <laughs> and she said, yes. Get the point here. And I said, I just want to change $50. She actually sighed. <sighs> 10, 20, 40, 20, 20, 45, 50, next. I take my product. Defect free. I had the right change. The timing was good. Service? Non-existing. What could she have done? She could have done, next gentleman, please. Welcome. I come to her teller and said, how may I help you? Just when she said, my pleasure, 10.45.50. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for coming by. Bang. Instead of being dissatisfied, I was satisfied. She could have done, and that is what I tried to tell you before, millennials. She could have said, the next gentleman, please. And come to her teller. Said, welcome, sir. Welcome, Mr. Schulz. How can I help you? Individualized to me, personalized to me. I said, I just want to change $50. My pleasure, Mr. Schulze, 10, 20, 45. And here are five coins, because I know you collect coins. Individualization. That's the next level of service. Okay, so I could have. But she didn't do all that. She said next, and she was, it was unbelievable. So I left there for the next 20 years. I'm not kidding you. I make a lot of speeches, usually four, five, eight hundred thousand and more people. I mentioned that story and mentioned the name of the bank. There is one teller, hear me, that defined the bank as a lousy bank. I talked the story about a lousy bank. 
But not only that, she defined her fellow workers. Wow, how, why would you let that happen? Why isn't everybody trained to look people in the eyes within 10 feet? Why 10 feet? Because when you come within 10 feet, you make the decision about the other person. But you have to define yourself. And again, it's a relationship that defined her. And people, why would you let that happen? Why would you let that happen anywhere? I, I, I don't understand that you, I, I don't understand. Teach him, but why, what is it within 10 feet? You make a decision about other people within 10 feet, subconsciously. But hello, they make a decision about you too. So we make sure that we, if you come within 10 feet, we look you in the eye and say, good morning, or good afternoon, whatever. How are you in the eye, smiling, good morning, welcome. That has to happen. In that moment, my employee defines me and the company and everything and, and their fellow workers. Why would we let it happen that they define us negatively? I, we either select wrong or we orient wrong or we teach wrong. It's not them. If they are lousy, well, why did you hire them? Or maybe you teach them wrong or you have the wrong work environment or they're just fulfilling a function rather than being part of something. That's it. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You. That was a, uh, a 90 minute masterclass. And if you want more from Horst, you can go to horseschultze.com. His book is called Excellence Wins. It's a great book. And thank you for teaching us at such a deep level. So Carly, you can fill everyone in on what's up thank next. You. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, yes. Horst. God bless everybody. Appreciate it. A warm thank you for Horst and Carrie. Thank you guys so much. That was incredible. Man, that was a fun episode to record live. And thank you to everybody who came out in Atlanta. We will be doing a few more of those, I'm sure, as time goes on. Thanks to our partners, Belay. You can get your free resource, The Top 25 Tasks a Pastor Can Delegate to an Assistant, by texting CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. And get free texting for your church with glue. Go to get.glue.com. US slash texting to sign up for your free account. Well, don't forget also, I have got, uh, well, some show notes for you. I've got transcripts for you over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 575. You can find it there for free. And next time, I am so excited to have Seth Godin back on the podcast. Seth has always been one of my favorite people, but as we've gotten to know each other over the last few years, even more so. He is the real deal. And we talk about work and a lot of other things. Here is an excerpt. They are doing an endless series of chores. They are using authority to get people to do what they want. And they are trying at all costs to avoid failure. That's what managers do. Leaders, we do work that if we do it for 20 years and it didn't work, we can still say, I'm glad I did it. Because that's the work, is to show up even when it's probably not going to work, but it was still mm. worth trying. And I think that there are a lot of latent uh, leaders who have gotten caught up in the trap of managing. And one of the things that you've done with your work over and over again is reminded people why they signed up for this in the first place. And it's not to be a cog in some sort of spiritual machine. It's to be a leader. So that's next time 
on the podcast. Also coming up, we've got Frank Bueller, Dr. Henry Cloud. Who else have we got? John Gordon is coming back. Paula Ferris. Gloria Mark, Dr. Scott Lyons, just did an interview with him. Absolutely fascinating. We've got Judah and Chelsea Smith, Miroslav Wolf, a theologian I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, Richard Foster, and a lot more. Before we go, every Friday, I send out a newsletter to over 85,000 leaders, and what it is is some of the best stuff I have found on the internet that week. It's a curated newsletter, usually three, four, five pieces, thought-provoking, short, it's on faith, culture, uh, AI, deep fakes. Uh, what else have we got? Tipping. I gave out a guide to tipping around the world once and a whole lot more. Just stuff that really catches my attention. Uh, sort of in your lane, but also out of your lane. I find that's the best way that I learn. So if you're curious and you want to know more, you can opt in or opt out anytime. Just go to ontherisenewsletter.com. Sign up today for free. I'd love to get that in your hands as early as this week. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I really enjoyed being with you today. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and review, share it with a friend, hit me up on social at Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, and I hope our conversation today helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.